Hi, I'm Nigel Campbell, editor of Jazz in the Islands magazine, with another episode of Island Jazz Chat, a podcast featuring conversations with Caribbean jazz and pan jazz musicians based in the islands and the diaspora. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Island Jazz Chat. Today we have the privilege of speaking to Virgin Island steel pan musician, although some people say he was born in America. Oh, he doesn't look happy. <laughs> we'll get to that. Ladies and gentlemen, steel pan jazz artist, steel pan virtuoso, Mr. Victor Provost. Well, <laughs> you already start a complaint. Talk to me. Yeah. Well, because I am not American born. I was born and raised in the Virgin Islands. 100%. Now, yeah. let, me, let me tell you something. Eh? There, you have to go to AllMusic because AllMusic.com, Tom Jerk has written your biography. And it yeah. says you're born in Washington, D.C. and raised in St. John. Now, no, I know you. And <laughs> well, for all those who don't know, I do jazz artists and the greens. And Victor was on our show. And Victor yeah. told me he was born in, in uh, the Virgin Islands, but I'm reading this thing today and I'm thinking, did I get it wrong? So no. thank you for correcting that. You were born and raised in the U.S. Virgin Islands. He's a Caribbean yeah. man. Deal with yeah. it. One hundred percent. And here the accent. I love it. One hundred percent. Um, but yeah, but I've been living in Washington D.C. for um since 2009. So what we're going on uh, 12, 13 years, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. and yeah, I've been living in the, in the United States proper for much less since about 2000. 2000. Yeah, All right. 2000. 22 years. And he's only 25. <laughs> That's another story. Anyhow, so, so Victor, take us back to the beginning. How did you begin your music? Cause you've given us some stories about hearing a pan in a school upstairs. And I, so just give us that story in pre see if you don't mind on. About getting into pan and then certainly how did you begin your music career? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, so I, I kind of grew up in a, a little bit of a, a musical household. My father played, used to play guitar and, and piano and he would teach me, you know, teach me certain songs on the piano. I never really got into guitar. I tried to take guitar lessons and it, it was unsuccessful. Um, but we always had little instruments kind of hanging around the house, right? And one of those instruments was like an old, I don't even know what kind of, pan it was but it was an old old pan and um a ping pong so i used to kind of just like knock on that right play little whatever little songs i could find and i never really thought too much about it but i was i was i was taking piano lessons through the saint john school of the arts and i was practicing downstairs at in in kind of the basement one day and i heard some music coming from upstairs right and so i went where i went upstairs to see what was going on it was, I mean, it was a steel band, like, the, mm-hmm. the, like at, at a real, you know, it was probably about 25, 30 kids in there playing. A full band. Um, yeah. yeah. And I decided, I mean, first of all, it was all my friends. And I decided like this, if I'm going to be spending time, you know, playing music, that this is, this is what I want to do instead. Right. So that band was under the directorship of a, a man named Rudy Wells. Who I hope uh, you know a lot of your listeners will, will recognize the name. Mm. Um, those of them that are you know in, into into pan and steel band um, mm-hmm. would recognize Mr. Wells as a, as a member of Trinidad All Stars for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, All Stars, kind of one, one of the 
Yeah, one of the one of the original kind of innovators in this instrument. Um, wonderful arranger and composer of steel band music. Mm. And so I had, you know, I had that privilege very early on to to mm. to learn from a master. Very good, very good. So after your school initiation, you you played pan. How old were you when you when you met um when you hooked up with Rudy Wells? Hooked up is probably the wrong word, but you know, met him. And- probably like. 11 i think i was the, mm-hmm. about 11 years old when mm-hmm. when, this, when i joined the band yeah, yeah. and yeah was that i don't mean to ask age but i mean that no, has to come no, out sorry. so i and and this is where the math gets a little bit fuzzy for me i was either 10 or 11 i think it was about 19 1990 or 1991 okay so yeah probably 1991 very early 90s um, yeah early 90s um, I was in middle school, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was maybe, yeah, 11, 12 years old, something like that. Got you. Got you. Mm-hmm. So you and got that, it. And that, go ahead. You Sorry, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and that, uh, you know, I was, that that band went, um, basically ran from about 1990 to 1995. Mm. Um, under, you know, yeah, under Mr. Wells' leadership. And then, and then in 1995, you know, the... Um, Hurricane Marilyn was a kind of a devastating hurricane in the Virgin Islands mm-hmm. that kind of threw everything off, right? So schools had to share buildings and school was shut down for a long time and the boats weren't running. Mr. Wells actually lived on the island of St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. I grew up on the island of St. John. So Mr. Wells used to come on a boat to St. John three days a week wow. to teach us. Wow. Right? And it was a, a, a very high level of commitment. But after the hurricane, he could no longer he could no longer do that. Mm. So what happened after 1995 in terms of music for you and, you, and the living situation after Hurricane Marilyn? Yeah. So Ma- Marilyn, um, Ma- Marilyn actually destroyed the, the, the home that I, I grew up in. Wow. Um, so 95 was a yeah, it was a, a, a um, it, it was a. It's interesting, man. You know, I, I'm 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 41 years old now, and so I'm like the age now, around the age that my father was mm-hmm. when that hurricane hit. Right, my father, my parents were, mm-hmm. and so I when I I don't have very deep memories of being. I never felt unsafe. Got you. You know what I'm saying? I mm-hmm. never felt unsafe. My my, you know, we didn't live in 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 a tent. Um, we we never lived in an unsafe environment. I mean, my my mother and my father were able to reach out to friends very very quickly. That were able to orient us in different kinds of housing and living situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though you know we were, you know, even though we didn't have a, a home, our home had been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I never felt a sense of homeless like homelessness. Gotcha. So that that was you know that that. I think that's an important kind of distinction to make. Mm. Um, and kind of part and parcel with that is the fact that there wasn't a, a big, uh, there was no sense of discontinuity in my, you know, in, in my in, personal life, in my education, education in my music yeah. making. Mm. Yeah. Right. Was, so, yeah, we, you, we took some time off from school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure a hurricane destroying a school and a home. It's a serious <laughs> thing. Yeah. But I'm glad yeah. that there was that continuity because that kind of leads me to the next question. Like after the hurricane came and but you still had a certain amount of continuation in terms of your life as it was. Yeah. How did you evolve musically? Because did you go to music school as at the tertiary level or secondary level, whatever? How did that sure. happen? And where did it happen? That's, 
That's a good question. Um, no, the answer is no. So when I grad, so after 1995, um, when the band kind of disbanded, you know, I had convinced my my parents um, to buy me a little tenner pan from uh, from Iga Iga Maya in in, in Trinidad, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I I took there was a a store like a, one of them tourist stores that sold little toy seal pans and stuff. Right? So I went to the woman. Yeah, yeah, I went to the woman after after I said, listen, if I if I come by in the afternoon and just like play outside the store, if you could give me a little like seven dollars an hour, eight dollars an hour, right? Trying to negotiate my negotiating a business arrangement. You're not soft, right? I mean you know a little there was a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. Um I, I wasn't I wasn't hustling. I gotta I mean I admit like some like hustling but Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that, you know, that was kind of the beginning. If I have to pick a point in the beginning of a musical career, and that was the first time that I played in exchange for money. And I used to go mm-hmm. to the store. It was real informal. Mm-hmm. I would just go to the store, you know, a couple of days or, you know, whenever I want and play for as long as I want and then go inside and collect my little, you know, $15, $20 or whatever it was. Mm. And, um, and, and and kind of move on, right? Um, but that situation kind of led to some other, you know, some other people hearing me, right? Uh-huh. Some uh, people that own the rental homes and stuff used to hire me to uh-huh. um, to entertain their guests. Uh-huh. Some other uh, some some older musicians on our island of Saint John that had contracts with the hotel started uh-huh. hearing me play play outside this store. Mm-hmm. And I think just it, it it kind of progressed. And when I first started doing it, it was just me playing pan, mm-hmm. and it was me playing the arrangements, like all the tenor parts from the songs that I learned mm. from Mr. Wells, right? Yes. When I started teaching myself more, you know, more songs, I got myself a little rhythm box. Mm-hmm. Started learning how, you know, I used my the skills that I that I that I had from taking piano lessons, and mm-hmm. was able to create my own tracks and stuff. Wow. So then I had my little tracks and playing, you know, I was maybe 16, 16 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that was really like the, the beginning of my musical career. And then, and then when I graduated from high school, you know, I, by the time I graduated from high school, I was playing maybe seven nights a week. Um, in, in around in, the hotels and in, wherever in, yeah, in St. John. Exactly. Yeah, wow. exactly. Mm. Seven days a week I was playing. I would go to school. By the time I was in my senior year, I would go to school. Mm-hmm. I would come home in the afternoon. Um, maybe do my homework <laughs> and then go <laughs> to the gig. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and then go to the gig, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was um, you know, it was good, it was good money for, for a high school student. Mm. But it wasn't um it wasn't musically, it wasn't very uh, uh it wasn't satisfying, it wasn't super satisfying for me mm-hmm. musically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Mr. Wells imparted on on, on all of us was um his 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 taste in, in repertoire. Mm-hmm. Right. And his taste in music. And he had a very broad kind of uh, a broad taste in, in repertoire music. And and so, he, you know, he was one of the first people to introduce me to to jazz, right, to, to the jazz repertoire. And, I, you know, I always was kind of interested in this. And, and luckily, I was playing with a, a piano player in the hotel named Carl, Carl Powell, Carly Powell. We used to have a band called uh, Carly Powell and the Paradise People. Mm-hmm. And we would play... You know, all, all the kind of standards, um, you know, feel so good and feel like making love and 
Lament and you know Spain and mm. tunes that you would be you would kind of expect to hear. It's probably yeah. still in a rotation in in, in Trinidad, right? And mm. All over the Caribbean. It is, yes, actually. Yeah, so I I really got kind of my my musical career started. Career at that point, yeah. Six, yeah. But when I graduated high school, I didn't have since I learned in a panyard, right? I went to <laughs> at two experience. I was I was learning in a panyard with Mr. Wells, mm-hmm. um, and still unlimited too. And then my high school, I went to a parochial school, so we didn't have a band. We didn't have a band program. We didn't have a music program. Our music class we used to meet once or twice a week and sing hymns. <laughs> Oh, wow. From from memory. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. So, you know, the, the truth is, man, when I graduated from high school, I didn't have enough musical training mm-hmm. to enter a music program on a, on a tertiary level. Right? Okay. And and also in 98, when I graduated, there was not the opportunity. The, there's still very few opportunities, but some now exist where if you mm-hmm. graduate from high school and what you do is you play pan, mm-hmm. you can find us, you can find a, a uh, a university to attend now so in, that that yeah, exists now, now. yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know not so much in 1998 gotcha well certainly i guess a similar thing happens in trinidad also they are um, the idea of pan as a tertiary education i know we know about northern illinois and of course that's down the road but even in trinidad pan as a as a musical course i know they teach it at utt and i believe also at um costat but it didn't happen in the 1990s, but I'm not sure. I don't think that was the case at the time. So you were part of that milieu that came out of high school, had already had some pan experience playing clubs, little gigs and that kind of stuff. You worked with a pioneer, Mr. Wells, Rudy Wells. And you understood jazz with Carlo. Give me the name again. The- Carly. Carl Carly. Powell. Carl Powell. Yeah. Yeah. So that somewhere along the line, seeds were planted for you, certainly for a career that we know you now. Did you, you said you moved to, you know, pre-conversation, actually may have been part of this. You said you came to America in what year? 2000? Mm-hmm. 2000? Yeah, 2000, right. Yeah. So, so <laughs> to do what? To, to go to school for the exactly. school or to live? Right, right. No, for sure. So when I graduated from high school, I was having these conversations about what I'm going to do, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I remember telling Mr. Wells, you know, I want to, I want to go study, you know, I want to go study music. Mm-hmm. And him saying, um, well, Boy, you should go study. You should go study computer science. <laughs> get a job. <laughs> get, get yourself a job. He took me. He said, "Look, you see, you see this. You see where I live. You see this apartment where I live. This is this is thirty five years of teaching music, right? You don't want to live like this. You want to." And um, and it was the nineties. You know, it was the late nineties. This is what people did in the nineties: was computer science. Right? That's true. So yeah, I, I graduated from high school. Um. I, I actually went behind everybody's back and I took a, I took the exam at the University of the Virgin Islands mm-hmm. to um, to see if I could get into the music school. I couldn't. I couldn't get into the music school. And this mm-hmm. is a funny story. The one of the questions, the one I remember that tripped me up, and mm-hmm. all the pan is going to appreciate this, especially the tenor pan players. One of the questions that tripped me up was spell and write the F sharp major scale. So I said, all right, I know how to play the F sharp major scale. F sharp, A flat. B flat, B, C sharp, E flat, F, F sharp. Now, those are all the correct pitches, mm. right? You go and play those notes, it's going to sound right. All the wrong names. And that's the <laughs> difference between being ready to be in music school mm. and knowing how to, and, and being able to play an instrument. Mm. Um, so I didn't get in <laughs> to, to, to that program. And it's, I, you know, I went to the computer science program instead, and then I transferred to the University of Pittsburgh in, okay. in 2000. Um, so that was the reason you moved to the states. 
that the was the transfer. that was the big reason. Yeah, I okay. mean, it was that. I think, you know, it so was, did you see I limitations? Was young, I was 18. Yeah, it was that. It was the limitations of like you know playing the same song in the same hotel over mm. and over again. People asking for Yellow Bird. I'm yeah, I was not going to say Yellow like, Bird. Yeah, 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 man. Just you know, the two of us, maybe. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no. If I'm lucky, it's just the two of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and so yeah, it was it was a reason, but it was also an excuse. You know, mm. it's like I knew I could use this as an excuse to get out, mm. and I could go study computer science. But what what ended up really happening was I got to Pittsburgh, I got to computer school. I did not excel. I didn't enjoy it. I lasted about three semesters, maybe maybe a year and a half, two years. Um, at the University of Pittsburgh before I dropped out of school. Mm. Um, and in the meantime, I had connected with, uh, with Carly's cousin, a mm. bass player named Arnold Stagger. Arnold had a band in Pittsburgh. And that was the first time that I had seen like a band band. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like a, a, a group of, it had piano, bass, drums, vocals saxophone and it was playing like you know they were, they were playing all kinds of hip music it was the first time i saw somebody play original music i thought that was like the most amazing thing ever they say well this is a this is a song that our piano player wrote and i was like man this Blown is away. crazy yeah because mm. in st john it was always me and carly with a rhythm box mm-hmm. we never had no drummer no no you know? no live band it was instrumental yeah. karaoke I call yeah. It. yeah 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 you know, the most exciting thing that ever happened to me was for a little while, there was a guitar player named Jeff Medina from Trinidad. Trinidad, yeah. Have, yeah, yeah, that moved yeah. to St. John. I was, I was playing some gigs with us, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was like the most exciting thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that experience in, in Pittsburgh, I started tagging along. I just mm-hmm. call Arnold. Hey, Arnold, y'all have, I have a gig tonight. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, he used to come pick me up, mm-hmm. um, take me to the gig. He said, well, one day he said, you know, bring your pan. Mm-hmm. He let me sit in on the gig. Then a couple of times, you know, after that, he, he said, bring your pan. He let me sit on at the gig. Then he gave me a little $40 after. Mm. And the next thing I know, I'm like in this band. Wow. <laughs> so I've done, learned all the repertoire. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to make my little connections in Pittsburgh. Right. So that is where your musical, your American music career, let's say, I won't say professional music career, but your American music career started in Pittsburgh as yeah, a panist yeah, sure. in a band. Yeah, as a panist in a a, a a band band. that was, right, like, that was leaning towards, like, R&B, smooth jazz. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we played stuff like, we played some Herbie Hancock, we played Mm. some Steps Ahead, we played some, Mm. you know. We played stuff, stuff, really progressive stuff. Um, Okay, this would have been in the 2000s, if if my chronology is going correct at this point now. And you, you were gigging and that kind of stuff, and I guess working somewhere along the line. One of the things yeah. that I learned throughout the doing some research for this conversation was in 2006, I believe it was, you, you put out an album called Smooth Steel. It's not mm-hmm. part of your kind of official discography. And literally, yeah. there's only one reference of it on the internet, basically a cover, a, a album jacket cover. I want to know about that because I, I believe that's part of your biography, and, and I think it should be put out there. Give me whether it's yeah. a toss away or if it was just. What, did, nah, what was the story no, with that? No, for sure. I mean, man, well, you know, Nigel, artists are interesting. We, we interesting people. <laughs> we really? got our... <laughs> mm. God, our, you have my daughter like, copying me in the background. Mm. Um, every time I laugh, she laughs. So in 2006, that was the year that I left, that, that we decided to, to leave Pittsburgh. I had, I had met my wife there. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, the whole time I was living in Pittsburgh, I wasn't going to school, right? I was doing these gigs. And it was great. It was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I was learning a lot on the bandstand. Mm-hmm. I also had various jobs, like day jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So I used to work at Sears selling washers and dryers. I worked in hey. banking for a long time. I was, you know, I was uh, worked as a bank teller, customer service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and- I, you know, I... I, I was had a date. I was going to say you had a day job, yeah. but keep going. Mm. It was it was always that, right? And I so I had this, you know, I had this lifestyle that was that was cool. I had a day job. I could have my own place. I could afford rent. I could go, you know, play these gigs. But there was that kind of feeling of stagnation was starting to creep in. Mm-hmm. I met my wife right as she was getting ready to graduate with her master's. Mm-hmm. She has a master's in education, and she basically was like, "Yo, um, so when I graduate." Mm. <laughs> yeah, step up or step out. She said, "You, she said, you could come, you could come with me if you want, but we're not staying in Pittsburgh." I hear you. And so that you know that 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 year, we I, we we left Pittsburgh. My I left my job at uh, at in banking. That's a whole other story that I, I'll get into with anybody that's interested mm. on the side. Mm. But I had one of the things that I did with my my little retirement money that I that I had from the banking job. Was I bought my first laptop? I bought a Mac, mm-hmm. first Mac, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a Mac, and I bought a um, a little microphone. Mm-hmm. And the, around that time, technology has started changing to the point where, see, when I was growing up, I used to program my own tracks, right? Yes, and it always sounded like a synthesizer, mm. right? very robotic, just mm-hmm. yeah, very very robotic. Um, but when I got that Mac and I started realizing like, you know, I can almost make this sound like a band, like to an extent, mm-hmm. I could almost make it sound like a, like a bass player, almost make it sound like a guitar man, right? I could, mm-hmm. post, I could play drum fills and stuff. It could almost sound like a band. So I said, I said, well, all right, let me, I have the stuff that I need. I have this repertoire. I know how to play and program these songs on piano. So let me go ahead and make this record. Mm-hmm. And see what happens. And I, I, hooked, I hung up a microphone in my, um, I spent about maybe a month or two programming the, the tracks, mm. um, hung up a microphone in my kitchen mm-hmm. and made, a, made, a, made an album. A record. Did a rec- yeah, did a recording. So I played everything on a record and then I gave it to a college student at, at um, I, I mixed it myself. I had no idea what I was doing. You can hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I gave it to a college <laughs> student at, at Carnegie Mellon University mm-hmm. and asked him to master it. He was probably like, I don't know, a freshman or a sophomore at yeah. CMU. And um, and he mastered the record. I got my friend Daryl Wade, one of my best friends, um, to create the album art. Yeah, that's you know, that's on the internet just, still. <laughs> yeah, it just did it all in house, man. I had you know somebody. I gave a you know this young lady maybe a hundred dollars to come take some pictures of me. Um, do you have any yeah. more copies of the same? Because as I said, oh yeah, it's plenty. It's plenty. You have a whole set <laughs> under your bed. <laughs> I have a whole box. <laughs> but here, you know. The, <laughs> so what? Okay, I I rec- as I said, I, I know it's not part of your official discography, right? But yeah. Uh, there, there are a bunch of people. I think I call them completists, right? So that yeah. just like um, an, an artist will go and get discarded tracks or any un, unreleased records. Right, right. How bad was it, or how good was it, or that you don't want to include it in the discography? Because at this point, you're already more than ten years playing. You have that kind right. of groundation. 
And it's yeah. not to say like you don't know how to play. Based on your first album, you knew how to play. Right. So how bad was yeah. it? So how good was it? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, the playing was fine. I think, you know, just it's just the quality. I mean, the quality of the of the record and the recording. And I, I'm happy to send it to you. It's just the quality of the the, the recording. Um, that's one thing. The two, the the fact that it's like, you know, the the pan kind of is it's I call it a misunderstood instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that contributes to that misunderstanding is the level of recordings of mm. um, of steel band music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, unfortunately, for reasons that I, that that I think are, are obvious. I mean, it's because we're in the Caribbean where this instrument is, is you know, especially in, in, in Trinidad where this instrument is from. Mm-hmm. The availability of, uh, you know, of, of, of recording technology. Um, and this is all changing now, of course. Remember, I'm talking about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the availability of recording technology, but probably most importantly, is just the availability of capital. It costs a lot of money to make a record. Correct. And in mm. is not many people getting rich playing pan. <laughs> Trust me on that one. They have to be with a right? band or something. It's a Toad Ralph McDonald or something like that. Um, yeah. That's not a dig to Robbie. But the, the big <laughs> issue is you talk about the recording of pan because even up to a couple of weeks ago, there was this argument about do you mic the pan from on top or from below? So that the whole idea of recording a pan, and Kim Johnson was telling me it's 1940, I think was the first recording of a, a pan, an, an early pan, to now, and we still haven't got, either have not got it right, or it's still not ideal as it was. You as a mm. panist and, and an engineer in, the, in your situation, making your first record, are aware mm. of that. You're also aware of the recording costs. And I think critically, all the years of all these panists that have been playing on records, whether it's Othello with Jaco or early panists who played with um, Monty Alexander or certainly right. Andy or these guys and thing. Yeah, playing a pan is nice, but it's, it's not a money-making venture. So even then, but you saw a future in pan because after Smooth Steel, you continued your career. I mean, tell me for more, a little bit about your career between Smooth Steel and 2011 when that began whose favorite shade of yellow. We'll get to that. What happened yeah, between those yeah. years? In that five-year period. Right. So what, one of the things that was kind of the impetus for me um, moving on from Pittsburgh, uh, moving on from the day jobs, was I, I attended the, um, the Festival of Steel, right, which was this uh, a steel band festival that happened in Morgantown, West Virginia, every summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was celebrating the artistry of uh, Dr. Ellie Manette. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, th- yeah, this is this is something that used to happen, um, you know, happen annually. And it was a, a, a week or 10 days or something like that. People would go to the, you know, of all places, Morgantown, West Virginia. Hey, forget um, it. Hey, right. And, and, and play and study um, steel band music, right? Mm-hmm. And, 
that year that I went, the Ellie's confidant, his his partner Kathy George, called me and said, um, "Hey, I heard I heard about you, you know, playing with this this band up in Pittsburgh and Morgantown and Pittsburgh, about ninety minutes away." Mm-hmm. I said, "So you know, I've been hearing about you, and we have this thing, and um, you know, I don't really have a job for you, but if you could pick up Robbie from the airport and bring him here, that would be that would be great." <laughs> <laughs> so my my first experience in that in that world was I was the I was the driver. The driver. I, went, I mm. pick up Robbie Robbie Greenwich from the airport. I pick up Ray Holman from the airport. I pick up Jeff Narell from the airport. I pick mm. up uh you know all the Tom Miller and Munson Ryder, Jim Munson Ryder, Alan Leitner, mm. um all of the 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 clinicians, right? The mm. professionals. And I, I I thought, well, this whole time I could I could see that I wanted to play and that I wanted to make music and make music a career, but I couldn't I didn't know what the end product looked like. Mm-hmm. To me, it always looked like okay, I have my day job and I can play music at night and that's comfortable and that's cool. But now I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, well, well, Robbie's doing it and um, you know, and and Ray Holman is I mean, these guys are here and Tom and he's teaching at a university and this brother. So there's like I could let me see if I could figure this out. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of that major transition. That transition. Excellent. Yeah. We, we, it took a while, but mm-hmm. we left Pittsburgh. Um, the first move was to the Virginia Beach area, Portsmouth, Virginia, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I, man, I was just knocking on doors. Like I said, I followed my wife. <laughs> I, didn't have yeah. a, I didn't have a gig lined up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have no connections. I didn't know anybody. I sent a few emails ahead of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I was down there knocking on doors. I literally walked into this building and I said, you know, they had a little steel band, like an after school program. That was mm-hmm. a lot like the one I went to. Um, and I said, you know, I grew up in a program like this. I, I'm a, I play pan. Um, I've done some arranging. Do you have any, you know, any need for, for something like that? The woman that was there said, actually, I'm the director of the program and I'm getting ready to step away. Boom. So I need somebody to do the whole the right thing. place at the right time, ladies and gentlemen. The right place at the right it time. Was, yeah. So being being an educator that. became part of your career as it was a music educator. Right there. Right, right there, there and then. Right at right at that point. I, I got the educa- I got experience in educating. Mm. Um I got experience in grant writing and administration. I got to use some of my banking knowledge. There you go. Right. And pull it all together. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a lot of work. Right. I was a one man show running this, the, the, the family programming aspect of this, mm-hmm. of this nonprofit, you know, nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. So I would do administrative stuff during the day, grant, write, fundraise, um, you know, logistics, plan summer camps and, and, mm-hmm. and gigs and stuff like that. And then in the evening, the band would come together and I would do the arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all, you know, Panyard style. It was all by the road arrangements coming off the top of the head. I'm yelling at people, yeah, C and E flat from the yeah. drum set. Yeah, that's right. what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Almost by road. So as part of your learning process towards, let's call it your first official record, you were in the field of education, programming as it was, and that kind of nonprofit programming that exists. And I, I know it exists. It exists here in Trinidad also, but... Certainly, it has a great foothold in the United States. Was this something that you wanted to develop on your own, or you could only happen, or this could only happen within somebody else's environment? Did you ever think about having your own music school? Let's say. Yeah, I mean, I definitely at that point in my in my life in my career, I 
I had no interest in creating something from the ground up. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I I didn't have the I didn't have the the foundation to do that. Um, mm-hmm. The lifestyle foundation, the the personal finances, the mm. um, the yeah, connections. I just, I didn't have the, everybody, I know yeah, these things don't happen alone. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. The connections, the, the the wherewithal, and and frankly, the desire. I I mean, what I was doing was essentially that, right? Like I said, I'm a one man show. Mm. The difference is, <laughs> the difference is. I know I get a paycheck from this from mm-hmm. this umbrella organization every mm-hmm. two weeks. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, if you're building something on your own from the ground up, they, that paycheck is yes. not... It's when they get it, it's when they get it. <laughs> exactly. If you get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and I, I've gone on to work for various, you know, various organizations like that, right? So mm-hmm. a couple of things. The When, when we left... Um, <laughs> So this this is how we ended up leaving that that situation. I was in I was in I was in Portsmouth, and there was a similar program on the other side of the river, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, Portsmouth in, in Portsmouth, Virginia, is a, a it, it it's um, kind of it has a reputation for for being on the lower end of the the socioeconomic line, yes right. Mm. And so this is the program that I'm teaching in, and then there's a very well funded program across mm. the river in Norfolk, right? Mm-hmm. Millions and millions of dollars. Wow. And um and I, I got a call from from the fellow that was uh you know that was the director there and he said, hey, there's a position opening up to be the assistant director of this thing. Um do you want to come do it? Two things. It paid less than <laughs> I was making. <laughs> it paid less. Um, and I said, well, you know, one of the things, one of the benefits that I have for being here is that I can take college. They reimburse me for college courses, mm-hmm. right? So I had gotten myself into this job, no degree. The, the 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 job was basically like, yo, we hired you without a degree, so you better go get a degree. Get a degree, yes. Mm-hmm. They said we'll pay for it, but you have to go get it. So I'm doing that, right? I'm in the process of doing that. And um, and so I asked him. I said, well, will you all pay? Will they pay for my degree? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, why would they do that? You're going to be, when you come for this interview, you're going to be competing against people with masters and in some case, PhDs. Wow. And don't, don't that, take your job. My advice. That flipped, that flipped the switch for me. Well, not only would, did I not take the job, but I was like, yo, I need to get my degree mm. now. And where did you like, get your degree right from? from? From George Mason University. Boom. George Mason yeah. University. And that's where an adjunct professor at present. Exactly. So you you started George Mason University, and certainly at this point you are beginning a career, your official, let's call it your official recording career, starting yeah. with that album, her favorite shade of yellow.
Tell me about the inspiration for that and how did that go forward? Yeah, so what one of the um as as we left that that Portsmouth area, a, a couple of things had kind of started coming to fruition around the same time. I had kind of endeared myself to this drummer named Dion Parson, who's originally from St. Thomas mm-hmm. and had a band for uh, called a 21st century band, right? Yes. Middle for middle of Virgin Islanders that were living in New York and, and were, you know, making careers as jazz musicians. Right? Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I, I want to do that. So let me call Dion and tell, tell him <laughs> that I want to be in his band. Um, and that's essentially what I did. I called him. Mm-hmm. I didn't say I want to be in your band, but I said, Hey, you know, um, my name is Victor Provost and I'm from mm-hmm. the Virgin Islands and I play steel pan. And here, here's, I'm, I'm sending you some, some recordings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, little couple of live recordings of me playing some, some jazz tunes, some standards. And so Dion reached back out to me. He hired me for a gig. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dizzy's Club Coca Cola, mm-hmm. right? At Jazz at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. And this was by far like, I mean, that happened, and I also got a call to play at the Umbria Jazz Festival. That was something that initiated 10 years prior to. The director of that festival was was vacationing in St. John mm-hmm. and heard me playing, playing pan wow. with my tracks. Right, right place at the right time. Like, hey, this is how it, this is mm-hmm. absolutely. He mm-hmm. heard me playing pan with these tracks, and, um, you know, I think I was playing like an Andy Norell tune. Mm. <laughs> so thank you, Andy. Um <laughs> Because the man hired me to go to, to, to Italy and play at this jazz festival. Yeah. I, so, I, I read that you were the first panist to play at Umbria Jazz Festival. Solo. Solo. Solo panist. Oh, yeah. okay. Othello was there. Othello was there with um with Jaco. With Jaco. And, and, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And, mm. and and somebody else too. I can't remember who else. Maybe um anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Othello, Othello was definitely there in Umbria. And and I know this because I've seen posters for Umbria mm-hmm. with Othello's name Othello. on it, right? All right, got you. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I was the first person to, to go play solo. And that's what I did in 98 was with my tracks, like mm. played solo pan. And wow. I know everybody that was there thought it was strange, right? Like I, I, I played in this huge, beautiful theater mm-hmm. and the hour slot before me was Bucky Pizzarelli, John Bunch, like these real serious, real serious American yeah, jazz yeah. musicians, mm. right? Mm. Um, and then I would go and set up my little sequencer and play. <laughs> play bossa novas and stuff right <laughs> but it was cool so 10 anyway 10 years later mm-hmm. um ironically that same album smooth steel mm-hmm. right there you 2006 go. Do, right? do discounted but he's, by, he's back he's back in the the his name is carlo panyota he's the director of the umbria jazz festival he was back in st john visiting you know doing doing his, his living in his villa or whatever and um and he saw it in, in one of the stores in St. John, one of the shops. Mm. And he said, he, so he sent me this email three years later. Um, he sent me this email in, in, and, and said, um, Hey, uh, I saw, I saw your album and I remember you from, you know, from 10 years ago. There's probably some sense of like nostalgia or, you know, in this, uh, you know, him wanting to like, mm. give back to this island that he's been visiting, whatever, for whatever reason. He said, you know, you want to come back to Umbria. Mm-hmm. And um and so by this time I I had a little bit I had more chops I understood business a little bit better and I said yeah I'll, I'll be happy to come back but I'm not coming back to play with no sequencer oh please like I'll come back I'll come back with a duo mm-hmm. so I went with a guitar player from Pittsburgh um named Mark Lucas but anyway so that gig came up and then the gig at Lincoln Center with Dion Parson like all mm-hmm. these major major things for me at that time. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. happened all at the same time in the same summer. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife, I said, like, this is, this feels like a moment. Let's, let me see if I could ride this wave and, and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> of course I went and I played those gigs and I had a great summer and then the fall came and I was like, okay, <laughs> now, <What next>? now, <laughs> I don't have a job. I don't have no gigs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What next? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that was the, the, the move to, um, a couple of things, the move to, to the Washington DC area. Mm-hmm just to really begin developing um you can't develop a, a, a musical career outside of a metropolitan area in, in isolation yes i agree with you, yeah, you have to, yeah, it's a conversation so, so, you have to be you have to be talking musically with your peers as it was exactly exactly and you have to be in a marketplace that that will latch on to your thing exactly right mm-hmm. so i mean in my case i have to be around the diaspora and mm-hmm. there was no diaspora there's no diaspora in mm-hmm. Portsmouth, very small so we came to the Washington DC area. It's a toss up between DC and New York. And, and I have my reasons why we, why we didn't go to New York, mm-hmm. but we ended up in the DC area. I sent out, you know, and I have this like, okay, get your degree thing in my mind. I sent out some, some emails to most of the schools in this area. Mm-hmm. And one of them emailed me back. Actually, they all emailed me back from the admissions department and said, this is great, but we don't teach that instrument here. I said, cool. All right. Mm-hmm. One of them emailed me back and said, hi. My name is Jim Carroll. I'm the head of the jazz studies department at, at George Mason. I got your email and I saw the email from admissions, but I want you to come and talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I went in and introduced myself to him and he could see, you know, I mean, at this time, Nigel, I'm in my thirties, mm-hmm. you know, he could see that I'm, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm a non-traditional student. Mm-hmm. Um, I got experience under my belt. I didn't play these venues. Mm-hmm. You did Umbria. <laughs> yeah, Umbria, right? So, and 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 the you know while I was in uh, one piece of the puzzle that's kind of missing is while I was living in Portsmouth, that structure of being able to to go to work and 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 do that um you know do do my administrative stuff mm-hmm. and have a very set schedule allowed me to take lessons with a guy named Charlie Banakas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a name that is kind of he's kind of like a legendary pedagogue, right? A legendary teacher, jazz teacher. Mm-hmm. I just I took lessons with him by correspondence. Mm-hmm. He had he had you know lots of different correspondence students, but some of the people that kind of credit Charlie Banakis with their their sound are um, Mike Mike Stern, Randy Brecker, Michael Brecker. He's a contemporary. Of uh, uh, I forget his name now. Modern jazz, electric second. jazz musicians, almost fellows who yeah, play post I mean, miles, not like post miles, but late miles. Mm-hmm. Exactly, like all the and especially like Jerry Boganzi is the name I was trying to remember. They were contemporaries, right? So they mm-hmm. developed this kind of like, you know, all of these post Coltrane mm-hmm. theories about how to, you know, ner- real nerdy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Double pendulums, double mambos, and you know, whatever triad pairs and etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i started taking lessons with him right via correspondence and that this was the first time that i took lessons you know what i'm saying yeah. like you don't take lessons on pan yeah you, i don't know you, you play just pan. Play, you play pan yes uh-huh. yeah. you go mm-hmm. exactly you go in the pan yard you 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 get the repertoire and then you move on right and then mm. You most people will you know do some stuff on the side, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. like to like ramage on the side or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like a structured way mm-hmm. of learning how to improvise, I'd, I'd never done that until that time. And man, that changed my whole approach to playing. So yeah. there's a reason why 2006, mm-hmm. you know, Smooth Seal mm-hmm. is this, 
And then 2011, the yellow is that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, a huge kind of sea change growth because of that structure. But anyway, yeah, so I'm enrolled now. I enroll in, 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 in college, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my 30s, I enroll at George Mason University and I get there and I'm playing this instrument and, um, and I go to the, the director of percussion actually came to me mm-hmm. and said, listen, they just had this building fund. We have like this much money left over. It wasn't a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We have this much money left over and we could maybe buy some pans. Mm-hmm. I said, cool. So I made a, you know, I made a, made a f- couple phone calls. I actually called, um, one of the contacts that I met at, uh, in Morgantown became a really good friend of mine. His name is Glenn Rousey. Um, Pastor, and incidentally exactly. just mm-hmm. passed about two days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, very young and t- way too young, um, mm-hmm. passed from, 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 uh, from cancer. Uh, but Glenn built this band for me on a discount. They built oh. a whole side, a whole 10 piece side on a serious discount, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on a serious mm-hmm. discount. And, um, you know, it was, it was the value of that, you know, that, that relationship for me. Mm. Uh, so anyway, now I have, I'm in school. I got, you know, I got, I'm, I'm developing my, my gigs here, right? Now I feel like I can play too. There's mm. a difference. Because then in Pittsburgh, like, I knew I couldn't play Nigel. I, mm. I just knew I, I could play like some tunes mm-hmm. and I had some chops, right? Yes. But I knew I couldn't play. Like, I'm hearing what everybody else is playing. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't playing that stuff. So by the time I get to DC, I've been taking these lessons with Charlie and just getting my butt kicked constantly on the bandstand by much better musicians than myself, um, including Dion and you know all of these guys. Um, I felt confident I could go out and sit in on these sessions. So I started going to jam sessions in DC, um, you know, playing advanced music, pretty confident in my playing. Um, and the knowledge and, of what and, you're playing, yeah, and the theory. knowledge of what mm. I was playing exactly because I had gotten my theory chops up, all of this stuff in preparation, really, to to get to go back to school because I didn't want to go to school and fail now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to do that as a as a thirty something year old man <laughs> mm. with a wife. Mm. You, you can't you can't flunk out of school, right? So I had my I had everything you know kind of lined up. I was doing all of this stuff, and Dion said, "Hey, um." What is this? Uh, what was this record? This 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 um this smooth steel record that I heard. And I was like, hey, you know, it's a record that I made in 2006. I made it in my in my um, I made it in my uh, in my kitchen. He was like, all right, cool, yeah, but you playing in my band now. So like, when people when people ch- go to look for you on the internet, they need to see something with some quality. Ah, <laughs> so <boy. bet>. yeah, <laughs> yeah, bet. yeah, yeah. He's, so he said, I'm gonna help you make a record. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, cool. So, and that's basically how her favorite shade of yellow went down.
was a thanks to Dion Parson. I had demanded. Yeah, 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 I mean it was a good record. Like his, <laughs> it was his prompting, right? It, mm-hmm. it was it was his vibing. Honestly, <laughs> Dion vibing me about 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 smooth steel. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they, not quite like that. But he had a point. It was like, look, mm-hmm. you're gonna start presenting yourself on a certain level, and you mm-hmm. need to have a product that at Love least begins to approach that level, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? That means like a professional studio, mm-hmm. professional musicians that have a name in the industry, mm-hmm. original music, right? So I had to start like writing some tunes, which I did very late in my career, put a couple of originals and I did all of these arrangements, right? And that was the big thing for me. It was an exercise and like whatever would become my compositional voices, two things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to prove with that record that I could play bebop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And it comes across very clearly for those who listen to the record. Yeah, that I wanted to prove that this thing that I had been working on, this voice that I had been working on, which was the, in, it was really the thing that I fell in love with. It, it, it was that language of bebop. Mm-hmm. Or very early on, man, when I started listening to my father's records and, and um, the stuff that Mr. Wells was telling me to check out, you know, Milt Jackson, all of these, these great jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that language or, or like when the Caribbean jazz, huge, huge influences on me um, when, I was, when I was in my teens and early 20s were two things. The, uh, the way called Pan Assembly, you know those records. Yeah, Pan Assembly, yes, uh huh. Right. Professor That's, had a couple of albums under the thing as, um, yeah, Pro, Mayers. Pro. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Pro, that I series. Mean, Profe- and there was a, it was a series with all, the, all the stars, man. So like Robbie was on it, Ray Homer was on it, Bugsy, mm-hmm. Pro, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody. And that, that first, that was like, okay, this is what Pan, this is what like a Pan soloist does. Mm-hmm. This is the repertoire. This is the approach. This is what improvisation sounds like. This is this is that thing. And then the other records that were very um, that that were kind of inspiring for me were the Caribbean Jazz Project records, Andy and Paquito and, and yeah, Dave Samuels, exactly. I think. Mm-hmm. Dave Samuels, yeah. The mm-hmm. three of them kind of co-led this band, and those were influential because, like. I was hearing, I mean, Latin jazz had been a thing for a long time, right? And those those records certainly had their um, their share of like Afro-Cuban music, mm-hmm. but those were some of the first records that I heard, like Begin, mm-hmm. um, you know, or or or, or Soka, like in the context of this, you know, of this this improvised music, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even those records, I remember latching on to Paquito's like his vocabulary and just be like, man, that's, I want to, I want to play like Andy's instrument, but play it. Like I want to get that a language that Paquito has because it is two different kind of two different approaches. Anyway, that was the, that was the goal when I made our favorite shade of yellow was to, to kind of say, you know, I want to set myself up to show that I can improvise. And I don't know what was going to happen. I think part of me thought that like, Oh, well, the jazz, like the jazz world will recognize you as a bebopper, right? Like as somebody that could play bebop on, on pan. That, on a pan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it hadn't, hadn't really been exploited to, mm-hmm. you know. Well, um, it, in, in terms of jazz pan, and this is me coming not necessarily as an expert on what I'm hearing. Andy was doing his own thing at that point, original mm-hmm. compositions. And, and Andy has told me he wanted to write original music that is not necessarily a calypso as it was. Um, I think Robbie was doing a, um, a series with his, the, the, the keyboard player who ultimately is with, um, what's his name? He plays with Upman? Jimmy Buffett. With yeah. Upman or something Buckman, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, the Trini Jam, they call it, they have a, they have a little mm-hmm. duet kind of thing happening there. 
But right. certainly when I heard um, favorite shade of yellow, and of course you were doing the covers, I said, this right. man has a bebop on. Now, the only other person I knew who was doing bebop and recording was Rudy Smith, who was based right. in Scandinavia, right? Yeah. And he had done a couple of records with Sanchi Electronics here in Trinidad. So they were, they were available, himself and um, Annie Sadid. We had on our podcast yeah. last. But um, there weren't that many, right? And certainly... Yeah, there's a Oth- couple of them. Yeah, and Othello made his one album, I think it was in the 90s. He did his, um, his album... His, his mm-hmm. single solo album. So in right. terms of this thing called pan jazz, if the word jazz it has a kind of American meaning, there weren't that many, right? So it was right. a kind of surprise when I first heard your record. I I, I didn't know who you were. And mm-hmm. I heard your record and I said, oh my God, you got to get this fellow on our show. And years did pass between that record and your second record, and of course, your appearance on our show. But yeah. I, I remember pointing at others, saying, look, there's a fellow playing jazz, right? And it's really, yeah. it's really quote unquote the real thing, right? Um, let me just ask you a question. I've, I had read, as I said, a couple of reviews on, on all music, and they all say that you're the, basically one of the only panists who's putting bebop on, on pan, right? Mm-hmm. Those reviewers didn't know the kind of range of musicians that it has called. But what was right. the reaction in terms of a pairs playing a steel pan? playing bebop in terms of a musical pairs. How was that reaction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, early on, it was the the pan is the only reason they let me they let me play. <laughs> as I was, de- seriously, as I was developing, as I was learning, like, to play mm. this music, the, the I mean, the fact that I came, if I came playing the same notes and the same content mm. on a trumpet or a saxophone, they would have told me, don't come back don't until come. you have your stuff together. Don't bother come back until you have your stuff together, right? So, so in that case, like that's it was a blessing. But now the the flip side of that is that now you have to deal with the novelty of the mm-hmm. instrument. Is it still a novel um, instrument? I thought we had passed that stage. No, man. Now, <laughs> no, it's a very novel instrument. It's it's probably my trend. That perspective is different, but you tell me. Yeah, it's a. I mean, globally, it so it's an instrument that that has uh, a kind of a global footprint now, right? It, mm-hmm. I think the ship has been sailed on that a long time. Um, but I can't, you know, on in almost every ev- almost every show I play, mm-hmm. because a lot of my shows are for you know for jazz oriented audiences. Mm-hmm. Um. Somebody, some almost every show, somebody comes up and says, "You know, I've never seen that instrument before, or I've never heard that instrument played like that before, or I've never yeah. heard that instrument in a jazz band before, mm-hmm. right?" And so the instrument itself is not novel, mm-hmm. um, but the novelty of taking it outside of the context of the expected. Mm, yeah, outside of Yellowbird, Bapu's side. Yeah, the tourist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kind of mm-hmm. the tourist class mentality. Mm-hmm. That's another podcast too. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that podcast. Yeah, that, that's a whole other yeah, so, story. A long conversation. Yeah, outside of that experience for them, it becomes novel. Mm. You know, it, be, it becomes you. something unexpected and something different. And and the thing is, is is that I used to I used to think, okay, well, that's a listening audience. You know, they have one they have one set of expectations. They have a kind of a you know, uh, um, some limit, whatever their, their limitations mm. are in terms of understanding. But the musicians, they'll get it. Like mm. the musicians, they'll be able to hear beyond the instrument and mm-hmm. see, like, and 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 see the work that I put in and understand the language that I'm speaking, mm. right? And then they'll be able to to hear the the depth of that language. Mm-hmm. And um, and man, the funny thing is that doesn't happen. 
It doesn't happen wow. all the time. It doesn't happen. I, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen at all, but it, it's not a guarantee. It's not, you know, it, it's not like they, it doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen you know? all the time. Yeah. yeah. A lot um, of times, you know, there's, there's, and we can give you this little anecdote. And, and this is not a, this is not a dig to anybody that does this because I did it for, for a very long time. And there's a lot of value in this, right? But I, I, I played on, on a jazz cruise. Mm-hmm. Right. And the jazz cruise is, is the, the, upper echelon of jazz musicians they mm-hmm. put them on a cruise ship mm-hmm. with a bunch of old people and they sail, yeah, and they to sail around yeah <laughs> right they sail around for a couple you know for about a week and we play shows every day mm-hmm. and i mean i was there with paquito de rivera um and other music you know other acts that on on this on this ship were um uh you know esperanza spalding and charles lloyd and um mm-hmm. I, I mean just like the you know diane reeves and, and the the highest echelon of, of musicians, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I was walking, you know, I'd be walking around with the ship. This happened a couple times. I would be walking around the ship with um, with with uh, with the, the piano player in Paquito's band, Alex Brown. He's a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did introduce me. Inevitably, he would introduce me to people that didn't know me because mm-hmm. I don't live in New York. I don't play a small, you know, I don't play yeah, the, yeah. The, the clubs in New the York, gigs, and I yeah. play mm-hmm. pan, right? Mm-hmm. And so he'd introduce me to somebody and. Uh, and it was, he'd say, you know, this is Victor Provost. He's an amazing steel pan player. He's playing in Paquito's band, uh, you mm-hmm. know, this this week. And they would say, oh, yeah, I think I heard you earlier today by the pool. <laughs> because there's another cat on the boat that mm-hmm. had that gig. You know, mm-hmm. the, the guy for the, for the cruise company was playing with the tracks, mm-hmm. doing that thing. Yeah. Um, and so even these like very, very high level musicians were having a hard time distinguishing. distinguishing. I don't know if that, I don't know if to be sad or happy about that or to laugh at that because <laughs> I, I, in Trinidad of recent, about the last three, four years now, gigs in Trinidad, of course, beyond, before the pandemic and certainly at the tail end of the pandemic, opportunities obviously to play here in Trinidad, playing Pan were very, very, very limited. Panorama time, yes. So the opportunities arose to play on cruise ships. So we knew we had band members, guitarists, bassists, drummers, everybody, and singers, obviously, going there. But a couple of steel band musicians had gone and played on ships. And well, one of them, I could call his name, um, uh, Mikhail Salcedo. He was on a ship. And I remember asking him, I said, were you asked to play Yellow Bird, right? And he said, not really, but at the same time, he's expected to play something that the audience knew. But he would challenge the the, the, the audience with some of his, his more contemporary kind of music. And when I spoke to Annie's Hadid, Annie's also told me that when he was, this is going to be like in the 90s or, or 80s or something. So he actually was on a cruise ship. It didn't last very long because, so I yeah. know that playing on a cruise, no, playing on the jazz cruise is one thing, but an audience, an audience's expectation of what a steel pan represents. And as you rightly said, that's a whole topic for another podcast. It's kind of limited. I, I was surprised mm-hmm. to hear that fellow musicians also have that same kind of way of thinking. But yeah. so be it, right? But one of the things yeah. that you were able to have, though, was a kind of cadre of musicians who got you. One of them is Dion Parson. Another mm-hmm. one is Reginald Sinchi, another fellow Virgin Islander who plays trombone. You were in a band called Sina Kwanon. Tell me the leader of the mm-hmm. band. Tell me how you got into that. Because I know they released an album and you were part of that, Simple Pleasures, back in 2013. Yeah. So the 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 that was a band that was kind of built by michael Bowie, great bassist um mm-hmm. washington dc bassist um but you know ve- i mean very uh very renowned and yeah we we played 
it was one of those situations where he and I kind of played, uh, we, we crossed paths several times, but never really played together. Mm-hmm. He, he would play a show and then I would play immediately after him. And so he would stick around and hear some of my set. I would see some of his set. And we realized that we had a, a, a camaraderie um, and he wanted to build something that was, that was different um, that could, that, that he could use as a compositional vehicle, mm-hmm. right. Without being a jazz like a jazz quartet or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, that that record and that group, Sine Quanan, was bass, right? Either upright or electric, depending on what he wanted to play. Drums, percussionist, mm-hmm. woodwinds, right? So saxophone or flute mm-hmm. um, and pan, right? So there's no keyboards, there's no guitar, there's no mm-hmm. chordal instruments. And a lot of the music was counterpuntal. Right. So it was, um, you know, a lot of single line, single mm-hmm. line instruments yeah. kind of weaving away around one another. One another it was yeah. heavy, you know, yeah, he- heavily, pro- you know, heavily, very percussive. And it covered all kinds of different genres of music. I mean, that, you know, we, I think on that particular record, we recorded some stuff that, that sounded, uh, you know, almost like it was from the Iberian Peninsula, like it was uh, some old guitar music transcribed, some Albanese, um, and then some stuff that sounded just like Jaco and Otello from, from the <laughs> from, 70s. From the 70s. Did yeah. you what? Did you do a second album with them, or that, that just one album? We did a. I know we made a second recording. I don't know if it was ever released. Uh, yeah, that, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. that. I haven't I, seen that at all. Yeah, okay. we 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 did a we did a follow up recording. Um, I think we recorded four or five tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, as a follow up, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was released. Those um, nice. that album, Simple Pleasures, uh, actually was not really slated to to be released as a commercial product um when we when we went into the studio and made that the idea was was simply to make it for promotional purposes Mm. to send to festivals and Mm. um you know etc agents but by the time we made a whole record and michael was like well we might put the record out (laughs) but maybe record but it out one time so i'm surprised to hear that it was not a planned a planned commercial recording, but a promotional record. But that said, after her favorite shade of yellow and Dion may have been right, opportunity certainly arose because another album she did was Afro Bop Alliance. Angel Eyes was that album.
that's Paquito's band. Tell me about that album. Yeah, so no, so that band, that's not Paquito's band. Um, the timeline for for the, for Washington DC is like I moved here, mm-hmm. I started school, I called Sinchi, I said, mm-hmm. Sinchi, I'm a I'm a fellow countryman, I just moved mm-hmm. to DC. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, "Come meet me down on U Street. We're gonna go play some sessions." And I did mm-hmm. that. We, he took yeah, me yeah. out all night. We played all these different clubs. Reginald Sinchi, um, he's a yeah. man. Mm. Yeah, yeah, in, 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 incredible, and. Um, I, I I met Michael and we started you know we started working together in in Sinequanan and then I was on you know since he called me for several of his his, his, his albums yes because I know you on a number yeah, of his recordings of yes mm-hmm. right um and I was I'm, I'm doing that and uh, and then this uh, one day I um, in my you know my, my attempt to get out and get to these sessions I, I went to a, a pizzeria right to mm-hmm. to to check out this band. Mm-hmm. That was playing Brazilian music, mm-hmm. right? And and I went and I brought my pan. I knew the bass player. The bass player is a, uh, was actually a school teacher at the same school that my wife was teaching at. Mm-hmm. And so I brought my pan and and I went but down and I played a couple tunes with him. Right? Okay. Nice little gig, easy sitting. And um and the the piano player on that gig, his name was Alex Brown. I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about him. I didn't know it, you know. Didn't know him, had never met him, but you know, he just kind of like smiling, gave me one of these, hey, mm. <laughs> and then I took off. Right, mm. never heard, never heard anything. And um, man, about two years, about two years after that, that was when I first moved to DC. About two years after that, mm-hmm. um, I got a phone call from Paquito de Rivera, and he said, "Hi, Vic." You know, just mm. out of the blue, he said, "Hi, Victor. My name is Paquito de Rivera." He said, yeah. "My name is Paquito de Rivera. Maybe you've heard of me." Maybe <laughs> I was going to say who. <laughs> <laughs> and um man so it turns out that uh you know paquito was ha- had this gig it was a reunion of the caribbean jazz project mm-hmm. him dave samuels and andy norell and luckily for me and unluckily for andy andy couldn't make the gig he had already committed yeah he had already committed to uh to to something else that summer and so apparently paquito is saying is like complaining to alex well you know who am i gonna get to you know mm. play this steel pan like who's gonna play those, those parts and and alex is like well i met this i met the steel pan player in, in washington dc mm. he's like i don't really know if he can play <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a second. is this the same alex brown who came to trinidad you? yes i don't know if he can play so he sent him some YouTube, sent, but he said, here's, here's some YouTube clips. He sent the YouTube mm. clips to Paquito. And I guess Paquito was cool. He was mm. fine with whatever he saw. He called me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, Alex and I j- kind of, we, we, we laugh about this now, but it's true. Like I walked into this random jam session, not even mm-hmm. a jam session. It was just a gig, mm. played two tunes mm. and then walked out and we didn't talk to each other again after that. We didn't stay in contact. I didn't even say hello to him. We didn't really introduce each other. Yes. But this is the nature of like so like social media and and all of this stuff nowadays, right? Just said connections can, are connections. It's right. who you know and who knows you. That's what exactly. it is. Exactly. And and so so anyway, so 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 Paquito calls me for this gig and and um and we we make the gig. I get go to Chile with 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 him and the band and. You know, kind of on the first night there, we're playing like some jazz tunes. We play, you know, play Cherokee and Invitation and we're playing Giant Steps and I'm playing all this stuff on pan and I could see like Paquito going, wow, this is like bebop is, is, is a different thing. The, the Afro Bop Alliance 
was uh, a band that was led by a drummer named Joe McCarthy, who it, it was living in, in this area, in the, in the Baltimore kind of Annapolis area. Now, when Joe had that band together for a long time, he was in one of the military bands. I forget which one. One of the, the Navy bands. He was a drummer, big band drummer for this Navy band. But he was able to, to, to kind of bring this project together. Mm-hmm. And one of their one of their early recordings, it was it was well, it was a recording that they made, Afrobop Alliance, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it featured Dave Samuels. Yes. And the story, and I, I don't know how much truth there is to this, but the the story that I got was that after they made the record, which was supposed to be Afrobop Alliance featuring Dave Samuels, mm-hmm. Dave Samuels essentially bought the record from them. He's, Dave Samuels said, you know, listen, I know y'all just made this record and I'm like a featured guest, but I want to bring this, I want to bring this recording to Columbia, to Columbia Records mm. and see if they'll put it out under the Caribbean Jazz Project name. Mm. And so it's Caribbean Jazz, jazz Project. Project. Yeah. The name of the record was Afrobop Alliance, yes, Caribbean Jazz that. Project. I did see that. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that, that was a big deal. That won a Latin Grammy. This kind mm-hmm. of put Joe, Joe's, you know, put Joe's name on the map and he was, you know, he was going for it. So then Angel Eyes um, was a kind of a, one of the later follow-up records, a small group version of that, like in mm-hmm. the Art Blakey tradition. You know what I'm saying? Like four horns. I was one of the horns. Um, <laughs> drums mm. and percussion, right? Oh, the percussion, yeah. Mm. Yeah, drums, percussion, bass, piano, all, all of that. Um, and so we made we made this record. And I've, I have a couple compositions on that record. One of them is called Omenahe, right? This is homage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an homage to the Caribbean Jazz Project. I wrote it very much in the style of the music of the Caribbean Jazz Project. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a callback to you know, to to um, Andy and Dave and and Paquito's style of writing and camaraderie on that on that record. This time I had already done a couple of gigs with Paquito and and Joe said, Hey man, do you think Paquito would play on Angel Eyes? And so I kind of helped to to 
engage mm-hmm. that connection mm-hmm. um, and bring those, you know, kind of bring and those worlds together. Yeah. Who you know and who knows you and connections, connections. I think that is so important in our music world that uh, part of the reason I wanted this conversation, aside from a notion of legacy, was so that people could hear these stories from other musicians because there's still, a, to me, a sense of isolation. What you've described in terms of you and Alex and that connection to to Paquito and et cetera and, and, and in whoever, that's great in America, but certainly within the Caribbean, I've asked musicians in the past, well, have you collaborated with other musicians? And it's all, everybody seemingly works in silos. Admittedly, to walk to, you can't walk to St. Lucia or drive to St. Lucia, but there's this separation. And I'm glad you're telling these stories because I think it's important for the, everybody, listeners, fans, whatever, to understand the importance of connections and yeah. the connection to Alex via this and that and then it it's this is a yeah. this this thread that i'm getting in this conversation is is really really beautiful and i'm happy that is happening so that your connection with alex brought on the uh, the angel eyes album with um which featured paquito right mm-hmm. there was another name that you called which is reginald sinchi um i want to talk about reginald sinchi if you don't mind tell me about that connection and the albums that you did with him yeah um like i said original was like the first person i called first the second person i called when i when i moved to the dc area um and he's i mean he was so 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 warm and welcoming man and and mm-hmm. and took me out immediately and then you know hired me to to play some gigs mm-hmm. um and then very early on you know he was in he, i think he was getting ready to make his first record and and he hired me to to make that record and, and it became kind of a sound
right? Um, so I think we made three or four records together. Yeah. And uh, and 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 yeah, I mean, it, it's just he has a very uh, a very um, unique and and confident kind of compositional voice. Mm-hmm. I was um, going to say that, yeah. yeah. And having a trombone as a lead was a kind of unique thing for my ears. Sure. But um, but certainly, of course, hearing it and and even the little hint of calypso that was in there because he, yes, he had a band, but I remember there was an well, certainly probably the later albums. There was music with just trombone and piano. Right. <laughs> like, but just admittedly a later album. I don't think you were on those albums. But you're quite correct. That compositional style was certainly a little different to my ears. That's yeah. That's that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So what year was that first album? If you don't mind, if you remember, the thing was called Freedom. And the, Freedom. Yeah. Uh, we, I want to say it at tw- probably 2010 or 2011. 2010, 2011. Okay, no problem. Yeah, so, it was, so, it's, so it was before your album, before your um, favorite shade of yellow, your only first maybe movie. Around the, maybe around the same time. And I'm, I might be off by a year. It might be mm. 2012. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, it gets blurry. <laughs> yeah. As you, as you were saying, connections are so important and you already had established Alex Brown connection, mm-hmm. um, Dion Parson connection, yeah. Um, yeah. Reginald Sinchi connection. Yeah. There was another yeah. album that you did in 2015, which caught my ear by vibraphonist Joe Locke. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me about that album, because I understand you have two compositions on that album. No, 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 no not compositions. Those are my compositions. Joe, Joe wrote all of that music. Um, you, all right, I you just feature on two. Yeah, featured yeah. featured on featured on two tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me let me say two things. J- uh, I met Joe Locke at that Umbria Jazz Festival. Um, smooth steel, I, Victor. Do not throw it. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I I, I was at um, I, you know my I had a like an hour set, and then Joe's band would play immediately following my my hour set. Me and my mm-hmm. me and the guitarist. Um, and I remember, no, it was the other way around. Forgive me. Joe mm-hmm. would play, mm-hmm. and he would just blow the like blow the roof mm-hmm. off this place. And then I would come with my little quiet duo set and play mm-hmm. play with my you know with with with, uh, with Mark. Mm-hmm. And man, one day, Joe locked. He just stayed after his after his game. after his set. Mm-hmm. He just stayed and sat down in the audience and listened. He didn't have to do that, you know. Every, I mean, his musicians. It's a jazz festival. Like we, everybody's there working. You know, he oh, just finished job. working. He could have gone back to the hotel mm-hmm. and took a nap. Well, on different, you know, different time schedules on different uh, 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 thing. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. jet lag. He could have gone to, you know, he could have done a million things. He could have gone and view, checked out the Italian countryside. But he stayed and he listened to my set. And he he was calling out from the audience. He was so encouraging, and he's like, "Yeah, whoa, what you know?" Mm. And um, that 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 stuck with me, man. We didn't make any like any plans or anything in it at Umbria in 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 '09. I mean, he's always been, especially from that time, he became a huge influence. Like his his playing and his music and his writing um, became extremely influential to me. And I remember I put up this <laughs> I did this little transcription this transcription video of him taking a solo on a John Coltrane tune satellite. Right. And I just transcribed exactly what he played. And I played along with it. Right. Yes. I put it up on YouTube. Uh, and I said, you know, so something about how great Joe is. And he sent me a little message on the side. He was like, man, you know, the timbre of the pan and the, and the, and the vibes together. I'm, kinda, I'm hearing that. That's kind of, I like that. Mm. A couple more years go by. 
And then we ran into each other at a convention, mm-hmm. at, um, a percussion convention called PASIC. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like that third meeting kind of planted the seed. That was it. Right. And yeah. I said, you know, I, I really want to, I want to, I want to do this record. I've got a record coming out and I want to, I want to, I want you to play on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was going to be me playing the melody on uh, Love is, I think the love. name of the song is Love is Love is Perpetual Motion. Perpetual Motion, yes, song. yes. Mm. That, I, that I ended up playing on. Mm. And um, uh, me playing on this ballad. And so I went to his house to, rec- to like rehearse these tunes. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I was rehearsing the melody. We were just playing the melody over and over again because it's hard. We played a melody and then I got it. And then Joe kind of left the room, but the, the track was still playing. So I started like blowing, right? I started soloing mm-hmm. and improvising. And he came back in the room. He was like, oh, man, you got to do that on the record. You got to take a solo on the record. So that's so that's how that record came about. It's just from a few, you know, a face-to-face meeting, a pl- an, an online pleasantry, mm-hmm. and then another random face-to-face. Face-to-face, meeting. yeah. Connections are so important in this business. I I keep telling our local musicians, it's who you know and what you know more so than your talent. You could be the, you could be the most brilliant musician in the world. If you're a sour yep. person, you don't ingratiate yourself with other people. You're not nice, and you don't know people, and you don't get out of your hole. Your career will be over. Yeah. But um, yeah. I'm happy that these stories are coming out in terms of your connections and how they work with you, how they work yeah. for you, I should say. Um, yeah. I know that Joe Locke album came out in 2015, but of course, by 2017, you had your second official album, which is called yeah. Bright, Bright Eyes, and it's on the, Akito's label. So tell me about that is. album. It is. Be- before we do that, very briefly, there's one other album that I, that, there's another album that I want to mention. Tell me. Um, it's called, yeah, it's called Home. Mm-hmm. And it's by a bass player named Lauren Cohen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also features Joe. 
mm. right? Um, and it's Lauren's right. It's all his all his writing, his original writing. I'm on half the tracks, and Joe is on half the tracks. Joe Locke is on okay. half the tracks. Okay. Um, and I think it's a really incredible album, man. It's um, I am personally like very proud of my output on that on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and it kind of got unfortunately it was put out in the same year as Joe's record. <laughs> And I think it got a little bit overshadowed because Joe had his thing, and then mm-hmm. um, he was also on the, on this other record. So it, it 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 didn't receive, in my opinion, it didn't receive uh, all of the re- recognition it deserves. So I want to put that out there. Lauren Cohen. Lauren Cohen. Home. Yeah. Home. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so I started working on Bright Eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about Bright Eyes. I, start, I know it's yeah, dedicated to your daughter on... and I have the photograph on the cover of the album literally shows her Bright Eyes. I mean, there's yeah, exactly. no denying that, right? <laughs> so tell me about that album. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this was kind of one of those periods where, you know, my daughter was, was, was born. I, I had finished finished my master's degree now by this point i'd gone to finish school all of this stuff from happens, college right? drop out to master's get with it ladies right. and gentlemen go ahead <laughs> in my 30s mm. uh, with a with, with a child, a child yes. so, <laughs> so there was this um man there was just this outpouring of like artistic inspiration right and that manifests itself in all of this writing mm-hmm. um, all of this composition something that again I got to very late in my career. Mm. I was good at like learning tunes and standards and improvising and all of that. Like I could go to a jam session and hang because I knew all of these, this, like this language. Mm. Um, but I didn't do a lot of writing. I didn't do a lot of composing kind of until that record. And so all of that, you know, all, all of that inspiration started kind of flowing through, um, with these compositions. Um, the, the record is mostly my original material. There's a, mm. there's a few covers. Um, but even those, those covers, I tried to treat as differently as possible, you know, just mm-hmm. very, very differently. 
I reviewed that record and, and, for, sorry, I, I just want to just stick this in. I reviewed that record for Caribbean Beat, which is the in-flight magazine for Caribbean Airlines. And one of the things yeah. that I did note, whereas her favorite shade of yellow was your kind of bebop statement of what a steel pan can do. In this second album, you explored a variety of styles, what I call from tropical latitudes. There was Brazilian yeah. rhythms, Calypso yeah. rhythm, and that kind of stuff. So you're going to tell me some further thing, how that expanded the, the range of your music. Yeah, I mean... Th- the other thing that happened on that record is is when I when I was writing, I realized that I may have tried to swing the pendulum too far with her favorite shade. In other words, I had a chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove. I wanted to prove that I could swing, mm. which is cool. That's fine. But it's not because I can do, because I can, and because I can play this language and because I can play in these, these rhythmic styles doesn't necessarily mean that that's who I am. And when I got to Bright Eyes and, I, and, I, and I, I'm doing this writing, this composing, I let myself be myself, right? That's interesting. And, I actually and thought so, you were a bebopper. I, I'm not going to lie to you. After, after her favorite shade of yellow, myself and some other musicians, we spoke and we said, oh yeah, he's a bebop panist. And that was it. That was your statement. So that yeah. Bright Eyes came almost as a, as a shock to my system. I said, oh, he does other things. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that, that, that was the point, man, is that, mm. you know, this, like I said, I'm playing this instrument. I'm playing it in the United States. I'm playing it in jazz clubs with jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And I have a chip on my shoulder. And I, 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 I have this, there's this, um, this overwhelming, uh, overwhelming need to prove myself, to prove that I belong in this style, to prove that I belong in this club. And I do that through the language and I do that through the repertoire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, like, and I did that at the detriment, and this is an honest statement, I did it at the detriment of my identity, like my true identity, true identity. right? W- whatever that is. I mean, mm-hmm. identity is a fluid thing and we, we, we go through periods in our life. You can but change, I, yeah. I I really tried to make her favorite shade of yellow not sound Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple things in there. There's like, you know, maybe a few things in there that, that hint at the Caribbean-ness. Mm-hmm. But I really tried to make it sound not at all Caribbean because I wanted people to hear the instrument and not associate it with reggae. Not associate yellow bird and, and, and a poolside thing. I right. Or, 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 even, or even panorama. Panorama. Like even very high-level playing. Right, mm-hmm. very high, high level, like at the you know the the the, the apex of of musical competition. Mm. I didn't necessarily want the instrument to be related. I, I wanted to show that the that that I could take it outside of that context. But right? admit, admittedly, even yeah, although Andy has a number of compositions, which to Mike Trinidad is songs like like a pan tune as it was, he's also experimented. And I'm I'm thinking that Othello had done it, as I said, Rudy Smith, and he's. They've certainly wanted to put the pan outside of Panorama, outside right. of the Yellow Bird kind of milieu as it was. Absolutely. So Absolutely. that what you did was just par for the course of what to move the identity out the identity of a steel pan, as I said, out of that kind of Caribbean tourist milieu. And mm-hmm. you you did it exceedingly well as far as I was con- as far as I was concerned with her favorite mm-hmm. shade of yellow. I was surprised to hear you say that you th- you think you went too high. Is that are you saying that you went too much? Overboard? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think I, I think I missed. I, I think I did it. Um, I think I overshot from a personal perspective. In other words, it, it that record does not represent my true artistic voice. Okay, gotcha. that record mm. represents me 
trying to force something. <laughs> trying to trying to please Dion Pass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or or prove a point. It's it's mm-hmm. me trying to prove a point to the jazz community, what, whatever mm-hmm. that means. Which is ironic because nobody listened to that. Like no I didn't get any I mean it it I put it out independently, right? And I didn't mm-hmm. do a whole lot of like hustle and leg work. Mm-hmm. Um but it didn't get any reviews. It didn't get picked up by an by a by a um you know by a label. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, that I think that's the irony is that like when I when I got to Bright Eyes Mm. And I started writing and allowing myself to just like al- allowing the music to be, you know, to 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 be influenced by the Caribbean, mm. right? Whether that you know whether is 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 um, you know music from Guadeloupe or from Cuba or from Trinidad or from the Virgin Islands, it does it doesn't mm. matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more of a natural kind of a natural way of expressing myself, mm-hmm. and the language. See the 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 way that I play, the way that I my melodic sensibility mm-hmm. um, is unique. It just is. It's different from all the other, you know, from everybody that's done it before. My melodic sensibility is unique. Um, everybody has a unique way of of creating. Mm-hmm. Um, I shouldn't say that as if everybody else's is the same. It's not. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things, man, on those Pan Assembly records mm-hmm. and with Andy's records and Othello's records and Two Left records because I had all of them. I had forgotten about Two Left, mm-hmm. but it was called. Uh, Pan Improvisations was one of them. And yeah, Pan Jazz the Improvisations. And yeah, Jazz yeah. and Steel was the second one that he had done with Sanchez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, you mm-hmm. know, Tell Stuff with Monty is like, mm-hmm. every one of them, like, Andy start playing, boom, you know, that's Andy. Boogsy start playing, boom, you know, that's Boogsy. Mm-hmm. Liam start playing, boom, you know, that's Liam. Mm-hmm. Everybody had their own. So it's because improvisers on this instrument developed alongside the instrument. Mm. And so it's not like in 20, you know, it's not like you're a trumpet player in, in 2010 mm. and you want to learn how to play trumpet. So you go back and listen to Louis Armstrong, Clifford Brown, mm. you know, Lee Morgan. And there's not a, um, there's not a know, body a of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a body of work for you to draw from. So we all are creating this stuff together. As you go, as you go um, along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we go along. Now, the, the material that I drew from was very specifically bebop not bebop tunes right not like jazz tunes mm. there's a melodic and a harmonic language that is unique to that music that even you can play a jazz tune <laughs> right <laughs> you can play a standard and mm. not play a lick of bebop to play like a, like a hotel lobby singer that very yeah yeah, yeah, yeah just a song sure, it, mm. it, it, exactly or you can even improvise in a way that is not idiomatic to that style gotcha right mm, gotcha. you know we've been I've, I've been on the um on the judging panel for a couple of the like the online um competitions right for the last few years where we've been mm-hmm. doing covid right so i was, I was on a panel for the ramage the pan mm-hmm. ramage competition mm-hmm. um and then the panorama competition right panorama, and, yes. yeah mm-hmm. panorama to, to uh is much less focused on improvisation um, but it is focused on a musical language, right? Mm. And so this is that was one of the themes that kind of came up that started coming up in these in, mm. in, in these competitions is like, hey, you know, these are your judges. You can't just go out and improvise in a style that's not idiomatically proper, right? That's not um you can't just go play a hip hop blues scale fast. Mm. It's basically what what the what the word was. And that's true. Now that being said. And then I'll get off this tangent, but I think it's important for, for anybody that's li- like musicians that are listening, especially in the Caribbean to, to notice that being said, there are gigs 
where if you don't play the blues, like if you don't play the blues scale, then you're not doing it right. You're not there's playing jazz. Where all, yeah, there's, there's gigs where all you need to do is play the the blues scale. That's it. And if you play a lick, if you play any bebop, it's going to sound bad. Mm. It's not going to sound good because there are ways to improvise in these idiomatic styles, right? Mm. But but yeah, so anyway, getting back to Bright Eyes, like I just kind of let myself be myself on that record. My melodic sense didn't change. The way that I improvised didn't change. But the way that I wrote Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that I, you know, the, that I wrote and expressed myself, mm-hmm. certainly, um, I was much more, much more open. It, it, as I said, it was, it was a change, and and that that, that was that was quite obvious to those who had listened to the favorite shade of yellow. It was a little more receptive. I could I could tell you this in terms of people yeah. who, who had heard your music and thing. And as I as I said at the top of this podcast, we hosted you at Jazz Artists in the Greens. I want to say it's twenty seventeen. I think it was twenty seventeen. Yeah. We were that you were there. I think that was also been fun, a big fun. And you worked with two local musicians. And the the idea of that connection, because I think even while you were in Trinidad, you, you hooked up every panist, I remember, wanted to come to the show to hear you play. Because your name had a... I thought, well, if you get Victor Provost, how many people know him? And a lot of people know you, admittedly, right? And kudos to you for that. But a number of panelists also wanted to hear your language, right? We had Jonathan Scales a couple of years before, and he was doing his thing. And mm-hmm. we're trying to get books for the longest, longest while, but hopefully we'll get them soon next year. But um, the, we've had always had a panelist on our show. But your year, as I said, it opened the ears of a lot of people, right, to what the language of pan is beyond what Andy has done. Because mm-hmm. being prolific is, is, has helped Andy, it has helped Rudy Smith, of course, being a trend. I didn't help Robbie, Bugsy, Ray, and all these kind of fellas and things. But I think what 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 we're what I've been trying to do with this podcast and what the business of Pan should do is make sure that all voices are heard in terms of what the potential of the the instrument is. And this is something that I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy that you've been doing, right? As I said, you've played on a range of albums, as well as your your three. <laughs> solo albums. Right? Yeah, I'll take smooth it. Steel, smooth steel, smooth steel. <laughs> right? But um, there was some. There was a, a particular song on that album. I think it's called. Not I think it was called Fit Street, and I think it was associated with a story. You were in Trinidad for a, a period of time. Tell me about that, now, if you don't mind. Yeah, I used to. So with, with I used to go to Trinidad with Mr. Wells in the summers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a a program that I believe it was sponsored by Pantry and Bagel. Mm-hmm. And they they essentially they hired Mr. Wells to come and teach. See, he went to Berkeley School of Music. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and and so he had you know he had he had this knowledge of a system yeah. of teaching. Yeah. And so so the, so he would teach in in All Stars Panyard every mm-hmm. day. It was a yeah. summer program, right? Lasted maybe six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. Yeah, six, two months. Weeks. Yeah, and and so I used to travel with him to to go right mm-hmm. to, to Trinidad and I was part of this I was in his, I was in his class I was in mm-hmm. a class with Dean Goldstone yeah um, was that superstar Mr. Entertainment himself yeah um there's another fellow they call Eisman his name was Andy um anyway it was a bunch of a bunch of the people that was um in uh in Panas that group Panas Panas yeah yeah there's a, li- a, 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 a group of Panis that really wanted to learn more about jazz, and Mr. Mm. Wells was was the was the, the way into that world. Yeah. Mm. Um. So yeah. So I used to say I used to say in Woodbrook on mm-hmm. Fifth Street. I used to say with a, a um a woman named Lisa, Miss Lisa. 
Miss Lisa, and, shout out. Yeah, Miss, <laughs> Miss Lisa. <laughs> and it was one of my earlier experiences before mm-hmm. I went, uh, before I left um, mm-hmm. for college. Yeah. I was in high school, but I'm here like operating like, mm-hmm. like a, a man, you know, mm-hmm. seven, now 16, 17 years old. I'm a boy, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm walking around Trinidad. Mm. Uh, a, a white boy now. <laughs> I, didn't, I, know, I, didn't, I didn't want to go there, but you went there. Yeah, yeah, a, white, a white boy, right? You can, uh, you, and, and so I walk around Trinidad, a white boy. And he went to, um, went to Helliard. Wow. It went up in, you know, in, 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 in Duke Street and all of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I used to catch the, you know, I used to walk out. If, if, I believe it's Tragarit. I used to walk up Fifth Street to Tragarit Road, mm-hmm. jump on a maxi. Yeah, take it downtown. And go in town, right? Yeah. And do the opposite thing, going home. Well, as it, so and, you became uh, native as it was, as we say. You became it, a native. It, mm. it, well, I don't, I definitely did not become a native. <laughs> not a native, <laughs> but, it but you became ind- native. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an endearing, mm-hmm. there was a lot of, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of emotional connection to One. that time in my life. And that's mm-hmm. that place in particular, yes. right? That street. You know, yeah, it became history. it's very became important. I got you. Um, one of the things was, well, not one of the things, let's talk about the future. I know that you're an adjunct professor at your alma mater, George Mason. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Are you planning to record again? Let's talk about that going forward as yeah, we kind we, of get we, to the end of this podcast. We, so Alex and I are actually working on a joint, Alex Brown um, and I are working on a, on a joint project. Mm-hmm. Um, much of the recording is, is already done. Boom. Um, we still have still have a little bit of a little bit of tracking left to do we have some some special guests that we're going to bring in mm-hmm. um to do some tracking for us but the album is um very, very close to being finished recorded i'm excited it's all original music there's no covers um sure. it's and it's i i think it's 
uh, kind of representative again of you know all of the different music yeah all of the different musical influences that you know all the music that have influenced me in 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 my life will it be on sunnyside um, records again there's no plan for it to be on sunnyside right now and we we're not i don't want to i don't want to like speculate on how the record will be released okay that's, i'm not going <laughs> to so push yeah, it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i don't want to speculate on how the record will be released because you know we 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 really don't know at this point mm-hmm. um but you know i should i should mention that the sunnyside uh the sunnyside Paquito connection. When I made that last record, I, I did, you know, I did the whole thing, right? And I made the, mm-hmm. I made the record. I got the band together. We went in the studio. I had a finished product, mm-hmm. and um, and then after I had the finished product, that's when I went to to Paquito. I said, "Hey, Paquito, can I play this for you, man? I, I would, I would like you to." He's actually he's on the record, so he knew yes. about it, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, he's on the track, and I said, "Hey, you know, can I get you to to listen to to the record?" And he listened to it. And he said, "Oh, well, you know, man, we should we should put this out." We should put this out on on you know on our label, mm-hmm. and that that's that's how that kind of came to be. It wasn't a it wasn't it was, a record. It was, deal. Not, it was not a label deal kind of thing. I understand from yeah. a number of jazz musicians, not necessarily the top echelon, and I'm not discounting you. Sure, but they sure, sure, sure. they make their records on their own, and then they get a label distribution deal as it was. So that I guess that 99%. is ninety nine percent. Yeah, I guess that's how it is. So you have to have the money yeah. to make the record. Either yeah. from collected or gigs or some kind of thing like that, or write a pop song, right. and then uh, yeah. and then you make a record. I, I I'm recognizing the music business and the, the industry of music has changed certainly from over many years and things. So so you, you you're not gonna get a Columbia Records or or Verve or some kind of thing coming and say hey, you know we hear your music we want to check you out. But um, right. more power to you for doing that because as I said, my thing has always been content, 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 and having a lot of it. I'm a fan of this thing called quote-unquote Caribbean jazz and even pan jazz. And of course, okay. it's very difficult to get people to, when they ask you, tell me exactly what does pan jazz mean? And you're trying to define it, right? But I can say, listen to listen to Bugsy Sharp, listen to Anis Hadid, listen to Victor Provost. That's what it is, right? And it has a range of sounds that because mm-hmm. that, that those artists um, comprise a different range of music as it was. And you're part of that echelon, and and, and it's, it's, that is is. You're saying that you um just to tack back quickly to the George Mason University. You're adjunct mm-hmm. professor teaching what at George Mason? Steel pan or so, just music? So I teach applied lessons in steel pan. I teach mm-hmm. applied lessons in jazz, really. So mm-hmm. um I have students that that when you when you get a muse when you get a degree in music performance mm-hmm. um. You obviously you go and you take your history classes and your theory classes and your math classes, whatever else you need to take. Mm-hmm. But on on top of that, you also take lessons, weekly lessons, right? One on one with your um with your applied lesson teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's one of my main roles there is mm-hmm. that I teach applied lessons. So uh, on a given day, I might see four pan players, mm-hmm. um, a vibraphonist and a vocalist. Now I don't play vibes very well, mm-hmm. but I play vibes, um, and I I can't sing at all, <laughs> but mm. but I can but I understand pedagogy so that I can teach mm. different ways of improvising. I can get these students right. I can mm. get these students improvising very. You know, the lesson can be translated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I've taught just about every instrument from violin to trumpet, from you know, voice, mm. pan, of course. Yeah. Um, I also teach 
in a class setting, I teach the jazz improv class, which is a little bit different. It's, it's, you know, it's a class module. Um, it's more theoretical in lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll give you specific exercises to work on transcribing, you know, lines to work on repertoire. And then you come back the next week and we move you along that way. Um, in a jazz improv class, I might teach, like talk about big picture you know, mm. theoretical situations, right? This this scale fits with this chord because of this reason, or this chord can be substituted for this chord in this case, or that those kinds of things. And then I also have an ensemble, a pan ensemble, mm. right? So the a lot it, of universities... Go ahead. No, you, sorry, you go ahead, you finish. So I was going to say, you know, a lot, of, a lot of universities have these pan ensembles, right? Steel bands. It seems um, as well, America, well, I'd say from the side, this, the size of the country, is yeah. every every university seems to have a, a a pan side? It's it's hundreds, man. It's hundreds, and you yeah. could, you could trace it back to there was a there was a time it, it probably in the seventies, early eighties, um, when uh, Americans were realizing that they needed to expand their educational offerings beyond Western music. Mm-hmm. This was one of the like the first main pushes into like ethnomusicology and mm-hmm. uh, understanding musics of the world as opposed to just studying you know, you know Bach and Beethoven. Bach and Beethoven, yeah, guys, right. And so the steel band is one of the the ensembles that grew out mm-hmm. of that that movement. Another one is gamelan, another one is taiko. Anyway, a lot of universities have steel bands, big time, varying levels. I've heard <laughs> you some of them. You have yeah. some universities that like you know mm-hmm. you have universities that compete on a world stage. And you have some universities that they just have a band They do a disservice. They I, it mm. actually is a disservice to the to the mm. students. So I've I've been to a lot of them. I've I've checked them out, and they all almost all of them operate under the auspices of like what they would call the per, the percussion department, right, mm-hmm. or an ensemble. Mm-hmm. So in other words, these students come in with maybe no experience playing band, mm-hmm. and then rather than take lessons. They end up in an ensemble, and they you see them doing yeah. this, and yeah, right? elbows all over um, the place, and hitting it like yeah. a bang and a drum, yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, that's what's going to happen because in an ensemble setting, the goal is to create repertoire. So anyway, mm-hmm. I wanted to do the opposite at George Mason. I didn't want to build a band and then fill it with people that can't play and teach mm-hmm. them songs. I wanted to fill my studio with pan players, mm-hmm. right? people that come to study the instrument and then fill my band with them with them yeah <laughs> get an advantage right away so that when yeah. they, they get on a stage they represent as it was right more exactly. powerful I, mean, that. I, I i realize that that is increasingly difficult in today's um mm. in today's economy um you know that's a, again that's a that's a whole other po- yeah, yeah. podcast on that but yeah. yeah that's a whole other topic and that's a, a topic of a conversation about the cost of Cost of a band, cost of instruments, and we've just recently launched a, a new steel pan manufacturing company here in Trinidad, Midco, with Akua Leith yeah. as one of the leads. But um, as I said, that's a whole other topic of conversation. But um, as as we're wrapping up here, I just want to say, say to you, Victor, this has been a beautiful conversation. Right? We've got to learn a lot about your life, about um, a fair amount about your recordings, a lot about your philosophy of pan, which I think is important because people people have these conversations about what a panis is and what, well, as, as I'm saying this word now, panis, I spoke to um, Anis Hadi that that word panis, he doesn't want that word attached to him at all. What do you call yourself? A musician, a steel pan player? What, what is your definition of what you do? 
Yeah, I mean, I I usually introduce myself as a percussionist. A percussionist. Because a lot of because if I say panist, it so I nothing. introduce myself as a percussionist and mm-hmm. I specialize in an instrument from Trinidad called the steel pan. Wow. This is how I introduce myself 100% of the time, Excellent. especially in the, in the arena of education, right? Mm-hmm. So college, I go to these colleges or whatever. Mm-hmm. I say, my name is Victor Provost. I'm a percussionist. I specialize in an instrument called the steel pan from Trinidad, right? Or the Trinidadian mm-hmm. steel pan. Um, so that covers a lot of bases, right? Mm-hmm. That tells exactly what I do. It tells mm-hmm. what the instrument is and where it comes from. Gotcha. Um, if you just say, if I say, hi, my name is Victor Provost and I'm a panist. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people aren't going to know what that is. Yeah, understood. Yeah. And on the flip side, if I say I'm Victor Provost and I'm a percussionist, I'm a jazz percussionist. They think I'm playing congas. They think I'm playing congas, right? Or vibes (laughs) or something like that. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I don't necessarily mind being called a panist, but I think that you should have... You should it, it should have more context. Yeah, clearly define yourself as it was. Yeah, pan. Yeah, as I I know that panis is a. It's well, we made up the word because we had to call these musicians something. Yeah, right. Sure. But they they it's it's a conversation that probably doesn't happen in America because what you've described it works. It's clear. It's mm-hmm. it's not succinct, but it it, it gets mm-hmm. hits all the bases. But there's a kind of you know suggestion that well, a panis is anybody who plays in panorama. I'm a little better than that, right? I'm. That kind of stuff. I'm not going to suggest sure. how you define yourself, but say what? Ladies and gentlemen, steel pan player, <laughs> percussionist <laughs> who specializes in his Trinidad <laughs> steel pan. <laughs> Victor Provost has been a, he's been a guest on our show tonight. And Victor, I want to say thank you very, very much for this conversation. And Man, I know you'll be talking again. I'm looking forward to the new album with you and Alex. And for sure. Will, can, can I have 30 seconds to say you something? You could have a minute. You could edit this out if you want. All right. <laughs> Man, I I just I, I want I want to say thank you um for you know for for inviting me and for having this conversation and letting me kind of talk a little bit about my life. A lot of that is stuff that that people don't know that I didn't wake up one day and decide like I'm going to do this and now I'm doing it. It was a long, a long, long road and a long process. And um, man, I am I am the result of like you've mentioned several times. I'm the result of being in the right place at the right time. I'm the result of being privileged, the privilege of just being able to ask my mother and father to buy me a tenor pan so that I could start my musical career is something that nobody else in my band had. You know, I, I have the privilege of, of being able to stand on the shoulders or sit on the shoulders or reach for the shoulders of Robbie, of Bugsy, of Andy, and all of those guys that, that, that really developed, um, this, this, this instrument and this sound. And, um, yeah, so I just I want I want to acknowledge that man before before and, we close an acknowledgement received and I and I'm I'm happy that you recognize well I'm happy that you've recognized one Trinidad as the home place of the birthplace of steel pan and two those pioneers and as I said you're part of our community when we're gonna claim you not fully but we're gonna claim you <laughs> the way that we claim Andy and you're gonna have some slings and arrows but be it be that as it may I think the proof is in in the recordings and you've already put your your stamp on what you do. And I look forward, as I said, to the new album. I also look forward to hearing Smooth Steel. That's a joke, but we'll hear that yeah. entire thing. So that's what it is. I'm Nigel Campbell. He is Victor Provost. And bye-bye. Island Jazz Chat has been a production of Jazz in the Islands magazine, powered by iRadio.tt. <laughs>